Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. As always, we are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. We're two PhD students with different backgrounds researching AI and technology ethics, and welcome to season three, Jess. Yay! And to kick off this third season, in our first episode, we interview Alex Monet on the history of digital pornography and the suppression of sexual speech from LGBTQIA communities as we explore his new book, The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight. Alex Monet is assistant professor in the English department and cultural studies PhD program at George Mason University. He researches data ethics and the intersection between computation and marginalization. And today we're just going to jump right into it. So here's our interview with Alex Monet on his new book. We are on the line today with Alex Monet to talk about his new book, The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight. And once we read the synopsis of this book, uh, we were like, wow, we have to have Alex on this podcast. And I think you'll all see why momentarily. But Alex, could you talk a bit high level about what this book is and also why it was important for you to write it? Yeah, of course. And thanks for having me on, Dylan and Jess. It's great to be here. Um, I think the the major thrust of the book is arguing that content moderation algorithms that are increasingly controlling what is visible and what is invisible online uh, are in most instances biased against LGBTQIA plus content. Uh, they tend to overblock or identify as a false positive uh, LGBTQIA plus community pages, sex education material, art, literature, activism, uh, and other sorts of non-pornographic content. Uh, and in the instance of pornography, they also inordinately make LGBTQI plus pornography harder to find without really doing much to make heteronormative pornography harder to find. So across the board, whether it's pornographic content or everyday content, uh, I think that the LGBTQI plus community online is, is bearing the brunt of these content moderation algorithms. Uh, and while the title might be a little bit hyperbolic, you know, to get people interested, uh, I think there's a you know systematic trend uh, across the internet of increasingly rendering LGBTQI plus content invisible online. And well, so actually, let's go back to the title of this book and specifically the second half: how the internet became straight. So, um, without just asking the question, how did the internet become straight? I think I'm specifically wondering if you can tell us a bit of the history of digital pornography in general and how it's been policed and regulated online? So pornography online, especially its, its moderation uh, by internet platforms and ISPs is a, a really interesting part of internet history that isn't dug into much at all. Uh, so for instance, Google from its inception has had a huge interest in understanding what pornography is, what signals indicate that a piece of content is pornographic, uh, so that they can control when and where pornography shows up. Uh, there's a consistent claim across the industry that advertisers are very hesitant to have their ads appear alongside pornographic search results. Uh, and 
there's also a very big concern that organic search results that are non-pornographic might have a pornographic ad next to them, right? So in either instance, uh, they don't want pornography showing up uh, when it's unexpected. Uh, and for them, this is central to their monetization scheme, right? So the way that Google derives money through advertising uh, is threatened by not being able to control when and where pornography shows up. Uh, and one of the things that I found that was really interesting, you know, I came at this by researching Google. Uh, most of my earlier research was on Google, uh, was that Matt Cutts, who was the head of uh, spam, making sure that spam uh, didn't, you know, destroy Google's search results, uh, was first tasked when he joined the company uh, over 20 years ago with developing a porn filter, right? And so he would uh, try to find textual classifiers, right? So keywords uh, that indicated pornography, uh, link topologies that indicated pornography, and other sorts of uh, user behaviors, uh, such as click-throughs and amount of time spent on site to try to build classifiers for pornography. Uh, and there are stories of him, you know, running around the office uh, in you know, 2000, 2001, uh, trying to get colleagues to break his algorithm by uh, locating porn uh, on Google uh, that he was trying to block. Uh, and, you know, so for 20 years, Google has been really invested in trying to control when and where pornography shows up. Uh, and it's linked to a lot of significant developments at the company. Uh, so their research into uh, computer vision is actually largely developed in pornography censorship, right? So the algorithms that we use to tag photos in Google Photos or to use uh, Google Image Search, uh, those algorithms all have their roots in porn censorship uh, at Google. Uh, so it's you know been a uh, historically very important but uh, uh, invisibilized aspect of running an internet platform uh, that that's been central to the business models of a lot of these companies as the web turned to an increasingly ad, like free service uh, with advertising-based revenue generation uh, or what you know, Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, right? Uh, and so I think you see it developing across the web. There's probably similar stories at, at all of these companies. And uh, Jess, I think the, sh the shift really happens when you move from I don't know, some people might call it a move from web 1.0 to web 2.0. I'd call it a, a shift towards uh, platformization, right? Uh, once the internet stops being this sort of like wild west that we imagine it where anyone with an internet connection can throw up a GeoCities page or an AngelFire page and show up in the top 10 results on Google. Uh, and instead, you know, most people experience the internet through the lens of a few specific platforms, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, or even Google search results. Uh, you've really concentrated the ability to control what is visible, what's discoverable online into the hands of a very few people, right? Because not only is this a small number of companies, these companies are usually small, right? They have few employees and they have even fewer people working on these sorts of policies uh, that determine what content is visible, these sorts of algorithms that try to automate it, uh, and the offshore content moderation labor that they, you know, purchase to, to try to fix any gaps in that uh, system that they built. So porn censorship's always been central uh, to the, the business of internet platforms. And as they increasingly took control of the internet, uh, 
the heteronormative biases of these small handful of companies and the small handful of people working at them uh, exercise a, a way oversized influence on how we experience the internet today. So this is um, striking for me as I also think about the rise of OnlyFans and the, um, uh, I guess the the narrative or um, the mythos that actually pornography is is more in the hands of creators. And so it sounds like we both have that that's happening, that uh, dynamic of um, people being able to create their own content. And then also this massive restriction um, and a surveillance of legitimate porn versus not legitimate porn and where porn can be posted and this, this moderation. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? I'd say that when I start talking about this with people, most frequently, if I'm talking to a cisgender uh, and hetero person, they're very surprised by this. Uh, and they assume that uh, this can't be true. Uh, whereas when I present this to uh, uh, non-binary people, trans people, uh, queer people, uh, a lot of them say, well, duh, of course this is the case. Uh, everyone's been talking about it for years, right? Uh, so part of it is really just like what corners of the internet you spend time on, which content creators you're talking to, uh, gives you a sense of this. There's definitely a pervading mythos uh, that, you know, that the internet brought a like tidal wave of pornography that was uh, uncontrollable uh, and everyone gave up on regulating it like post 1990s uh, and that no one's been organizing against it uh, ever since, right? Uh, which I, I show unpacking the book is, is you know, really a, a bizarre ideology we have best captured in the internet meme of rule 34, right? Like if, if it exists, there is porn of it. Uh, uh, whereas the opposite tends to be true, right? People have been very motivated and successfully organizing against pornography online without cessation since the late 1990s. Uh, they've had signal victories of getting it kicked off platforms, uh, and they have had undue influence on some of these platforms' content moderation policies. Uh, so there's, on the one hand, this aspect of like what's going on on the quote unquote, legitimate platforms, right? The non-pornographic platforms that tend to, to block all pornography and in so doing overblock uh, a lot of non-pornographic content. Uh, I think your question has more to do with the, the little corners of the web that are left for pornographic content. Uh, and what I found when I looked into those was, was a number of things, right? So first off, uh, the idea that amateur content is... Uh, free from the strictures of you know the mainstream pornography industry doesn't often tend to be the case for a few reasons uh one the porn industry understands amateur pornography frequently as sort of its research and development laboratory where they can uh uh not have to invest new any money but find new trends that might that they might then commercialize uh to greater success uh so, you know, they, they actually generate a lot of money for mainstream porn producers by, you know, serving as that, that research laboratory. Uh, second, um, if you're trying to get noticed, uh, you know, you have to be in the top 0.1% of performers on OnlyFans or on Pornhub to, to really make any money. Uh, you have to work with the system that you've been provided with. Uh, and the analyses that have been done tend to show that the metadata that 
tube sites use to classify pornography uh, is profoundly heteronormative and exercises an influence on what pornographic content even gets made, right? So if you're a, a amateur pornographer and you're looking to make money by doing that on the internet, you're going to look at the metadata that you can tag your content with, the ways that you can make it discoverable on a Pornhub or on an OnlyFans. Uh, and that tends to heteronormalize the content as well. Uh, and in what studies have been done, you know, it's usually white cis women that are dominating these platforms. Uh, and the more marginalized intersections of identity you participate in, the more likely you are to make less money, to be hounded by trolls, uh, to face online and offline precarity, uh, and to be, you know, shadow banned, censored, or, or demonetized. Um, so there's a lot of different angles coming at it there, but I, I think the, the case is that a lot of these sort of corners of the internet where porn is left to uh, exist because of the, the metadata structures, uh, because they're small spaces uh, that you know, are easy to dominate by the, the highly invested vertically integrated porn companies, uh, uh, because of pre-existing social biases, they tend to continue to privilege heteronormative porn. Uh, and have a lot of downsides for, you know, queer pornographers, feminist pornographers, things like that. So we've done a pretty good job at this point of describing the landscape of some of these heteronormative practices, like you described metadata as one example. And also earlier, I think you mentioned that there are just heteronormative biases in general that are sort of permeating from these large tech companies and influencing the content that people are able to discover in the first place. And uh, one of the things that we love to do on this show is get specific. So do you have any examples of uh, metadata or biases that might, um, I guess, promote this heteronormative agenda? And also, actually, while we're at it, can we define heteronormativity? Because I feel like this word is used pretty often in um, the discipline of tech ethics. And I, I don't know if there's a common definition that people think we are grounded in. I'm curious if you think there's one. So maybe we'll start there and then we can go into some examples. Yeah, thanks. That's super helpful. Um, yeah, I'll say that the hardest part of the book for me to write was trying to define heteronormativity, right? It's one of these uh, concepts. Uh, it's almost like what Potter Stewart, the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said about pornography, right? I know it when I see it. Uh, but it's hard to define. Uh, heteronormativity uh, is one of these sort of intuitive concepts that I think a lot of us have uh, a grasp on and could maybe point out an example of it when it's happening, but trying to give a formal definition of it is, is quite difficult. Um, and when I was working on the book, uh, I think one of the reasons that I found for that is that uh, heterosexuality is a really difficult concept to define. Uh, it's shot through with tons of internal contradictions, ambiguities, uh, uh, and that's part of its power, right? Uh, it's how it's able to persist over time, mutate to different contexts, uh, avoid critiques, uh, and sort of dominate just because it, it is flexible and can move from uh, definition to definition rather fluidly. Um, so when you're thinking about heteronormativity, it's going to be things that privilege heterosexuality. And so you have to define what the hell heterosexuality is, which, which is sort of the trick, right? Um, when the Puritans came to the US, uh, 
uh, sexual norms in the U.S. were largely based around procreative sex, right? You weren't supposed to enjoy sex. You weren't supposed to have sex unless you're trying to create a child. Uh, and this sort of dominated uh, sexual ethics in the, the U.S. for, I don't know, 200 years. Uh, of course, there were deviations from this and uh, regimes of discipline to sort of keep people in line with this, but this is really the norm. Uh, in the 19th century, you have a sort of competing definition that starts to evolve, right? Originally, heterosexuality emerges uh, in European psychiatric discourses to describe people that have an abnormal and unhealthy desire for opposite sex uh, coupling, right? Uh, so heterosexuality is first used to term for used to describe men and women that can't stop having sex with each other uh, when they're not trying to procreate. Uh, but it quickly becomes a, uh, a discourse that understands a biological drive uh, towards sex, towards orgasm. Uh, and that's really intention with the procreative drive, right? So you have this sort of theological uh, uh, ethic around uh, procreative sex that comes into conflict with a uh, more evolutionary uh, psychiatric uh, argument around a biological drive towards uh, sex and orgasm. Uh, and the two sort of fuse into a uh, a compact or an agreement uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, where it's understood that people have a drive towards sex. And primarily, this is understood as white, cisgender, middle class men uh, have a drive towards sex. Uh, and it is increasingly acceptable to funnel that into non procreative sex. First, you can have sex with your spouse uh, when you're not trying to procreate then there's some slippage and it becomes, uh, you can have sex with someone that you are in love with and intend to marry, but before you're married. Uh, and this sort of uh, constant conflict between the procreative impulse uh, and the like libidinal impulse uh, is, is what continues to structure heterosexuality. And it, you, you keep reaching these agreements, right? One example I give in the book uh, is that I think you can see a really interesting example of this in the polyamory movement today, right? Uh, it's able to achieve more public legitimacy and visibility because it's couching uh, the idea of multiple sex partners in the language of uh, love and uh, familial dynamics uh, and long-term relationships. Uh, and so there's this sort of nexus between the nuclear family and procreation, uh, between uh, anatomical, uh, like, physiological drives towards orgasm uh, and between love or amorousness uh, that sort of builds the center of heterosexuality. Uh, and I think a lot of the normativity is, is trying to uh, push people into the cultural forms that that gets understood through, whether that's through traditional gender roles, uh, whether it's through cis-normative understandings of uh, anatomical sex, uh, or whether it's through understandings of what kind of sex acts are normal and where you can engage with them. All of that stuff tends to be way more flexible and contextual than this core of like uh, procreativeness uh, and libidinal desire. Uh, but because 
the concept ambulates between those two poles and is flexible to, to circumstances, uh, uh, it can take account of that, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of different things that uh, define heterosexuality, but or participate in heterosexuality, but aren't necessarily deal breakers, right? So like you can think of heterosexuality as being uh, two people rather than multiple people. Uh, you can think of sexuality as heterosexuality as being conducted in private rather than in public. Uh, you can think of it as being conducted with someone that's opposite gender at birth rather than uh, uh, same gender or uh, non-binary gendered. Uh, none of these are deal breakers. And when you start applying it to to concrete instances, it it's quick to it, you can quickly find contradictions that make no sense, right? Uh, so if if we go with the standard definition of heterosexuality, if uh, a trans man and a trans woman partner up, are they straight, right? They're heterosexual heterosexuality has a really hard time explaining things like that, right? Uh, so it's just a really weird vague concept that uh, uh, gets tied into the politics of race, class, and gender in, con in concrete instances. And that really shapes how it's, uh, how it's deployed and how the norms evolve. Uh, but the kernel has to do with uh, the sort of ambiguous tension between the procreative impulse uh, and libidinal sexual desire. Sorry, that's too long. I it's no, that's that was that was great. That's it's it's super helpful. And one thing that I'm um was thinking of while you were talking is uh identity in general and identity politics, and then also that transmission of uh non-digital identity and then how that gets translated into digital spaces, including things like stigma. I was struck when you said, you know, a lot of people aren't writing about this. Um, and one of my questions, you know, in my head is is you know why, um, but I think my question to you um, is a bigger question of identity and identity politics, and maybe we'll look at the the specifics of the alt right is doing something here, and there are other politics that are at play. I know you use that as a case study, so maybe using that yeah. as a case study, let's enter back into digital identity and the specific identities that we're looking at, and why are these the ones that are continuing um, to be targeted in this space? Yeah, sure. So um, it's really uh, uh, an interesting alliance that gets built, uh, even though it's often tacit and the participants aren't all in communication with each other. Uh, there's a sort of shared agenda across anti-porn feminism, uh, evangelical Christian conservatism, uh, and the alt-right online today. Uh, in terms of their opposition to, to pornography. Each of them comes at it from a very different angle uh, or arrives there from a very different route, uh, but they all tend to share a, a commitment to censoring pornography, to getting it offline, uh, and have been quite successful in doing that. Uh, in the book, I spend a lot more time examining the path that the alt-right takes to get this to this position, uh, largely because the the sort of alliance between Christian conservatives and anti-porn feminists is well-trodden history, right? It's cataloged in a lot of books and articles. Uh, 
anyone that starts reading about the topic is is going to find that center stage from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, the alt-right is a, a weird new addition to what I call this alliance of strange bedfellows uh, that arrives there from uh, uh, a, a really a path of misogyny, right? Uh, when you start looking at different branches of what gets termed the alt-right, there's really not a lot of coherent connections across them, right? Somehow they all manage to uh, collectively organize and, you know, rally uh, support around, you know, electoral candidates, uh, but there's not really much of a shared ideology uh, outside of a strong commitment to misogyny uh, and to a lesser extent, but still very, uh, horrifying uh, to, you know, white supremacism, uh, or in worst cases, ethno-nationalism. Uh, but misogyny to me seemed to be the thing that, that connected them the most strongly. Uh, and I think in a lot of instances, the anti-pornography stance comes about through uh, an anger at women being able to successfully monetize sexuality uh, they understand themselves as uh, having a sort of natural claim to ownership over women's bodies and access to them for sex. Uh, and so the fact that not only are they not getting sex in the real world, but they're having to pay for it online uh, really irritates them, right? Uh, and so that's a, a huge organizing trigger for a lot of these folks. Uh, I also see a lot of people talking about returns to the masculinity of yesteryear and traditional family uh, and gender roles. Uh, and in doing so, they tend to bring with that a lot of cis and heteronormative baggage. Uh, and it's a major connection point with uh, evangelical Christian conservatives, right? Returns to family values, returns to traditional gender roles. Uh, proud boys are huge on this, for instance. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of ways that they arrive at this anti-pornography stance, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a wanting to return to a, a nuclear family, uh, whether it's wanting to uh, uh, assert their dominance over women and their right to access to them without paying, uh, whether it's the, the fear that uh, the fiscal empowerment that it brings will, you know, increase the capacity of feminism to you know, destroy their rights or however they want to interpret it, uh, they arrive at an anti-pornography stance and they organize around it frequently. Um, so one of the things I cover in the book is uh, what the alt-right called the thought audit. Um, so uh, thought for viewers don't know is uh, an initialism uh, that stands for uh, that hoe over there. Uh, and it's used to refer to, uh, you know, women that are attractive, but assumed to be uh, sexually available, right? Uh, and the thought audit for the alt-right was an attempt to systematically report sex workers online to the IRS for not paying appropriate taxes. Uh, Funnily, they found that reporting someone to the IRS is way more difficult than you'd think. 
You have to have like their social security number, their name, their address, all this information about them. It's like a, a 30 page document or something that you have to fill out. Uh, and the goal was to get a reward, right? If you report someone successfully to the IRS, uh, you get like a 30% reward on the, the money they recoup. Uh, but quickly, the the alt-right found that, that this was way too much work and that it wasn't having the intended effect. Uh, and so they pivoted uh, and they started using uh, web crawlers to crawl different uh, sex work websites, uh, including places like OnlyFans, to pull uh, usernames uh, and most important links to other sites, right? So most sex workers have to advertise themselves in clothing uh, or within the community guidelines on major social media platforms, right? So like OnlyFans doesn't have a search feature. So if you wanna drive people to your page, you have to have an Instagram and a Twitter uh, and a Facebook or whatever, uh, where you sort of produce content that is risque, but will be allowed to stay on the platform. And then you have to drive people to your OnlyFans page. Uh, and because of this, there's often uh, a nexus of links across all of your content that uh, can be used to identify you. And so the alt-right put together web crawlers to sort of grab this data, uh, and they used it to start systematically reporting sex workers on social media platforms and on financial service platforms online in an attempt to deplatform them. Uh, and it was very successful, right? Uh, although limited in its duration. Uh, uh, well, the thought audit as a term is limited in its duration. People are still doing this. They just don't call it this and it's not organized the same way. But uh, the deplatforming of uh, a sex worker, sex workers was a huge example of sort of the alt-right's ability to, to mobilize uh, and to leverage platform politics uh, against sex workers and particularly the people that drew their IR were, you know, LGBTQIA plus people, uh, people of color, uh, people with disabilities, people that were fat, people that had any other form of, you know, marginalization that, that would trigger uh, an alt-right crowd. Yeah, let's actually um, pause on that topic for a second, because for a little while there, when I was hearing you describe these attacks against sex workers, it sounded a bit like there was just an urge for suppression of digital pornography in general. And until that last sentence that you said, I, I was curious about how this suppression impacts LGBTQIA plus folks specifically, more so than just anybody who falls outside of that group. And so um, I guess maybe bringing it back a little bit to technology specifically, something that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, that's one of the big topics in your book is content moderation. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm curious how content moderation, whether it's manually done by humans or automatically done by uh, machine learning algorithms, how is this moderation policing or suppressing pornographic content in a way that is unfair more for people who are LGBTQIA plus than anybody else. Sure. Uh, and I think that gets at some of the heart of the new findings in the book. Um, so I think there's two aspects here that you can look at. Uh, you can look at the algorithms themselves that are sort of automating content moderation online. 
Uh, and then you can look at the human element, the policies that are made, uh, and, as well as the way that they're implemented by human content moderators, uh, whether they're you know, co-located with uh, a company like Facebook or offshore in the Philippines or in India. Um, as far as the algorithms go, the one that I had the most access to to analyze was Google Safe Search, because uh, Google opened up its uh, computer vision algorithm, they call it Cloud Vision API uh, to developers. Uh, and so through developer tools, you're able to uh, toy with it a little bit and get some sense of how it's working. Uh, and there was some public record on the data sets that it was trained with. Uh, and so those were also accessible. Uh, some of the things that I found when I was looking at the way that Google image search worked uh, as an example of you know, algorithms that a lot of these companies have that, that operate very similarly and are trained on similar data sets, uh, first off, the data set that it, it's trained on is, is hugely biased, right? So uh, safe search, uh, image recognition technologies at Google, things like that are largely trained on the data set ImageNet, which was implemented uh, in the late aughts uh, and was basically a large repository of labeled images that you could use to train computer vision algorithms. Um, it drew all of its ontology, right? The, the words that could be used to describe photos uh, from WordNet, which is a, a similar set of uh, synsets or language terms uh, from the, the 90s. Uh, and both WordNet and ImageNet, because it draws on WordNet for all of its classifiers, are, are filled with heteronormative bias. Uh, so for instance, uh, WordNet, connects homosexuality to pedophilia and to bestiality uh, in its ontology. Uh, it, connects, uh, it connects miscegenation to interspecies breeding. Uh, it connects masturbation to self-abuse. Uh, it really is sort of a catch-all of historically leveraged anachronisms for uh, slandering the queer community. Um, all of those sort of get embedded in the, the ontology that is used in the data set that, that these algorithms are trained on. Uh, additionally, when you look at the actual image data set, the, the pictures that are available that are training these uh, algorithms how to see, you find more biases. Um, so for instance, ImageNet contained a category for sluts. Uh, and the entire category is filled with uh, what labelers thought were scantily clad women uh, and interspersed there are a few uh, presumably trans women. Uh, but for the most part, the entire category of, of what it means to be uh, derogatorily sexually available is scantily clad women, right? Uh, a, social, a social bias uh, and uh, and understanding that anyone that is trans is thus also a slut uh, is also preserved in this category. Uh, similarly, they have a category for what they call closet queens, which they describe as uh, closeted gay men. Uh, right now, the category isn't very populated. They don't have a ton of images for it. And the ones they do have are comically bad, right? It's like uh, two leather daddies uh, holding each other, right? Uh, but there's 
problems here as well, right? So a lot of the images that they do have are uh, men hugging, uh, particularly if one man is hugging a man from behind, right? And there's a, a sense here that, you know, uh, male intimacy is, uh, is queered uh, and is inherently problematic uh, or needs to be hidden and thus unearthed. Uh, there's a sense here of sort of producing automated algorithmic gaydar uh, that that's quite scary, uh, and you know having these sort of categories in the ontology calls for their population, right? Uh, so if I'm farming out tasks on Amazon Mechanical Turk or a similar platform, uh, and I give people the option to label things with slut or with uh, closet queen or with things like that. You know, I'm calling those things into existence and inviting them to, to populate my data set. Uh, how these things actually impact the way that Google Safe Search is working is hard to trace out exactly, right? Uh, because I don't have access to the full algorithm uh, to, to really run a lot of examples through and figure out what's going on. I did start to run some data sets through and found some interesting things though. Uh, one was that it had a high tendency to classify art as pornography. Uh, and this was even art that Google has indexed in Google image search and knows is art, right? So I can go to Google image search, search for something like Venus de Milo, download the picture and then run it through its API. And then it will tell me that it's porn. Um, it's even worse with stuff that isn't classified uh, as as art, right? Stuff that isn't in a, a museum setting and Google thus knows is like a historically important oil painting or sculpture. So things like community art or fan art or things like that. Uh, and that means that the classifier is much worse at distinguishing between pornography and art when it comes to uh, community art, low budget art, fan art, things like that. Uh, and lots of historians of uh, museums uh, and uh, of art history have demonstrated the sort of power relations that the, the museum holds in society as a legitimator of what constitutes art. Uh, and it's oftentimes at the expense of queer communities, right? Uh, and so one of the things that's clearly going to be happening is that uh, uh, community art uh, and underfunded art and art underrepresented in museums like that from the LGBTQI plus community is going to be unduly censored. Um, I mean, some of the other instances I found, it's harder to relate to an exact training mechanism in Safe Search, but there's tons of other examples of content being over broadly blocked. Um, I'm also happy to talk about sort of the human end of moderation and the policies that uh, companies like Facebook put into place uh, to determine what's acceptable on the platform. Uh, maybe we can do that through, I'm gonna put my design my designer hat on <laughs> for a yeah. second, where um, all this sounds really um, overwhelming. You have the social dynamic, you have the socio-technical dynamic, you have the technical, the recommender mm -hmm. system dynamic. Um, it, there's, a, there's a lot. There's a lot of problems here. Um, and uh, I'm not gonna ask you the obnoxious question, which is um, what should we do? Um, but I'm gonna ask you the obnoxious question of what, what do we do to begin to dismantle these uh, systems? Is it the political organizing? Is it the maybe 
the designers who are building out these algorithms and just awareness and education? Um, is it something that the consumers can do or you know, all the above or none of the above? Partly I wanna hedge on this and say that, you know, I come at this from a privileged position. You know, I'm a, a white male academic uh, who views it from that perspective. Uh, and it really needs the contribution of a lot more folks than me, right? Even if that means them saying everything in the book I did is, is wrong and we need to start over. Uh, and so it, I'd really want feedback from listeners, from people on the street that are organizing, uh, from sex workers on, on whether some of these are the right approaches. But, but I do try to outline some of them because uh, I think that it's generous and important to do in, in a book, even if it's the point where you're most vulnerable uh, because you're most easily demonstrated to be wrong. Uh, and you know, I think it's, it, it is a mix of, of all of the above, right? Uh, I think these data sets are really pernicious because they oftentimes become benchmarks and then it's really hard to change them in retrospect, right? So even if you want to change ImageNet now, it disrupts its ability to serve as a benchmark for comparing computer science projects over the past decade, right? So getting data sets right up front is hugely important. Uh, and I think that the hacker ethos that pervades Silicon Valley is detrimental to this, right? The idea that, that the best way to, to move forward is to slap something together and then patch it as it breaks uh, is a, a problematic way to approach things that are going to become standards. Uh, and so I think investing upfront to build data sets the right way, uh, to analyze them for bias, rather than just looking for the cheapest, most easily available thing and, and fixing it later, uh, would pay dividends. Uh, I think doing that is going to require more diversity in the workforce. Uh, when you start looking at their policies, it's very clear that there aren't enough uh, trans people in the room because so many of the policies these companies make assume that definite that you know anatomical definitions of gender are you know easily easy sort of starting points for building policy. Right, almost all of these companies have an understanding of quote unquote female nipples, right, as like the 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 line you can't cross uh, in terms of uh, content on their sites. Uh, and when you have, uh, you know, trans people that are transitioning, posting pictures of their chest at each period during their hormone treatment, asking when they're being censored, uh, it throws these sorts of policies into jeopardy. Uh, when you have uh, men with gynecomastia uh, getting, getting censored for this, uh, it really shows that, you know, these sorts of axiomatic tenets that they're taking wouldn't be there if they had better input at the beginning. So having more diversity on the, on the teams and not just at mid-level management, I mean, actually on the research projects as they're determining what data set to use, what parameters to use on the algorithm, what sensitivity is set it to, uh, what accuracy uh, constitutes a, a publishable or implementable result, things like that, uh, I think would be helpful. From the outside, you know, I don't really, I don't know about you all, but I don't really trust Mark Zuckerberg to make the right decision or Jeff Bezos to make the right decision. Uh, I don't think that that a few billionaires are going to make social progress for us. And so I think we need watchdog groups outside of these uh, organizations that uh, collect data um, and that produce reports uh, and that can effectively advocate for users, right? So in this is, is I would love to have a, an organization that collects data on 
queer content uh, being censored online, produces reports on uh, where it's being censored and why, analyzes uh, the sort of impact it's having and can hold these companies accountable in a language that they respond to, right? Uh, with some quantitative data. Um, I also think that using our regulatory bodies more effectively to control this is important. Although you run into the problem there of, you know, we also have to fix our democracy so that our regulatory bodies are responsive to our citizens. Uh, so you start running into bigger issues. Um, I think that demanding that companies implement anti-censorship commitments uh, uh, would be an important step forward. Uh, and really, I mean, I'm probably more radical. Uh, and so I think about things like running ISPs and social media platforms as public utilities as advantageous uh, and kicking the billionaires out. Uh, I think uh, uh, really the, the movement ought to be towards uh, social media that is built for everyone uh, and that facilitates uh, encounters with difference uh, while uh, sort of preserving some of the lessons we've learned over the past two decades about how anonymity doesn't share its benefits with everyone equally uh, and how we can maintain accountability while also, you know, having an, uh, an internet that is heterogeneous uh, and um, surprising. Well, unfortunately, Alex, as usual, we could talk about this topic for a much longer time than we have so far, but we are reaching the end of our time. So I know you mentioned before if um, people are... Uh, interested in this topic, but also if they maybe have other ideas for ways that we can improve the status of a lot of the themes that you mentioned in your book, uh, is there a best way for them to get in touch with you or to connect with the research community that's doing this work? Yeah, I mean, they can at me on Twitter or email me, uh, uh, both of which would be welcomed, even if they just want to give examples of how this has happened to them because uh, I'm starting to try to collate them and make sure that they are more permanent. Uh, one of the issues was that, you know, people would make complaints that their content was getting taken down, but those complaints are ephemeral. They're tweets that get deleted or that are hard to see once their account goes private. Uh, there's really no archive of the stuff that's been lost. Uh, and so I, I'd love to hear from people on that. As far as a research community, uh, get in touch with me about building it. Uh, I haven't found it yet, uh, and I'd, I'd like to see it. Sure. Well, uh, just uh, again, for listeners, and we'll say this in the intro and the outro, we'll be plugging it constantly, but uh, the name of this book is The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight, published by MIT Press, uh, and of course, written by Alex Monet. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. We want to thank Alex again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And as usual, now it is time for Dylan and I to debrief our immediate reactions and initial takeaways from this conversation, which if you didn't know, we do at the end of every episode, at least for a few minutes. So um, Dylan, let's do the thing that we do where we talk about our immediate reactions. And what's yours? Yeah. You know, uh, sex, sexuality, sex work, pornography, these are topics we haven't covered that much on the show and topics that even when we were brainstorming the Radically I podcast in the first place, these were like the, some of the big topics that we had written up on our little planning whiteboard, including maybe looking at like sex robots or, or looking at OnlyFans or looking at 
something because there's uh, so many important conversations that are happening in this space that are undercovered, that are not as fully, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Underrepresented? Represented. Represented, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Underrepresented. Um, and that was something that I'm thinking about right now in what Alex said um, in in the research community, but then also in probably a lot of elements of uh, industry or areas of folks who are designing technological systems and websites and social media platforms. There aren't a lot of people, unless you're in like the porn industry in which you're probably pretty specifically focused on like pornography and sexuality and things like that. There aren't a lot of folks who are looking at this through a critical eye. And this conversation uh, reminded me how important it is that we begin to have these conversations about representation, not just about the topic, but about the identities and the digital identities that are playing out in this online pornographic space and beyond. And it made me wonder, you know, what's the barriers coming from an academic space right now? Like, why aren't people talking about this? Like, sexuality is part of our human experience, and yet there's something about pornography specifically that I at least have seen uh, very few people talking about. And so it makes me wonder, is there still a stigma around it? Um, is it just not seen as legitimate in scholarship? It rose, uh, this interview arose lots of questions for me. Jess, what are you thinking about? It's interesting hearing you say, like, basically, we're humans, and sex is a part of being human, and it's a topic that is just not publicly spoken about regularly. Like, it's sort of this taboo topic in most circles, um, especially in professional circles and in, like, academia. And it actually reminds me a bit of the research that you're working on right now, Dylan, with death. Like, the other thing that comes to my mind that is, like, so inherently human is, in fact, actually the only guarantee that we have as humans is dying. And it's one of the most taboo topics that people refuse to engage with and talk about. And so I, I totally agree. I think it's fascinating that, like, this is... This is a concept that surrounds so much of humanity and what it means to be human and creating new humans, but it's something that is given so little time in the spotlight. And another word that you said that, that I really um, was reflecting on was representation, because it's interesting, there's there's almost like two sides to this. So there's like representation, there's actually probably many more sides to this, but I'll focus on two. So there's, there's representation in terms of um, like who are the voices and identities being represented in explicit material, in pornographic content online? And is it equally balanced to represent the identities that we see in the real world? And then on the other side, you have this representation of identity as seen through the machines and as seen through the algorithms. And this part of the conversation that I latched onto, of course, it being my like nerdy computer science self, was what we were talking about, the algorithms and the training data and this image net data set that's used as a benchmark. And it's fascinating because I think about representation in that data set as almost like a bad thing. <laughs> like... It's it's definitely a contentious topic because I'm I'm currently working on computer vision for my internship and I understand that computer vision data sets should be representative and have all people from all different backgrounds who look 
uh, all different kinds of ways because we want to make sure that these models and algorithms are robust to all different kinds of people. But when we're annotating these data sets and attempting to categorize these people, it's almost like representation isn't great if the annotations are malicious. Like in the examples that Alex gave where um, they had like the closet queens annotation or like the, the slut annotation, like in those circumstances, representation is kind of being like defamed in a way. Like representation is not good if the things that people are extrapolating from this representation or annotating from this representation is um, not beneficial to the community that's being represented. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. And it points to the massive complexities and systems that are at play here, both technical and then also social. And, and one of the parts that also stood out to me of this interview is that even these annotation categories are not acontextual. They're not coming from, uh, they're coming from a history, right? They're coming from a social history that is, I guess, millennia in the making um, that has uh, encoded over time different understandings of sex and sexuality. And obviously there's a huge diversity across the world and across time and space about what uh, sex looks like, what it means, what it signifies. But right now, the categories that these annotations and uh, benchmarks of identity that are being embedded into some of these technological systems are being based within a societal status quo, which is largely heteronormative. And uh, I think it's really important for all of us, folks who are studying this, as folks who are designing these technological systems, to remember that we are living in a history, which also means that we have agency in determining what the future is of uh, some of these categories. But the work can't just happen in the technological space, although that's an important space for us to work. It also needs to happen on a broader societal space. And it is interesting, like, thinking about ways to solve this and and going into I guess like the tail end of the conversation that we had with Alex because I I agree with a lot of the ideas that he had like I love the idea of coming up with more robust benchmark data sets and better annotation guidelines that are less western centric that are less heteronormative a little bit more inclusive that definitely don't include like a slut category for example it would be a great start um but he's totally right that these data sets are so entrenched and ingrained in the foundation of the machine learning research community and even the, the practical uh, community that lives within industry is using these data sets as benchmarks to test their own models as well. It is, it's been used for so long that it's so hard to convince people to change these data sets or to come up with a new one or to retroactively go back and um, modify and alter the research that was conducted with these data sets. And so I, I'm sitting in a space of like hopefulness for the future that, that we have good people working on this um, sort of problem and coming up with new annotation categories that are more inclusive and new benchmark data sets that are more robust and have been tested for like ethical harms. But I'm also skeptical that this is a change that will happen anytime soon because it's going to take a long time for people to adopt these new data sets that are more robust and then an even longer time for that data set to be trusted as a benchmark and to be used for long enough to be 
compared to other data sets and to be able to use to compare models in the way that benchmarks are used. And one thing I'm thinking a lot about is the role of the consumer, uh, in this case, especially the role of the pornography consumer, because if you look at the numbers of people who consume pornography on a daily basis, and I'm also thinking especially folks who are coming of age in their teenage years and some of the representation um, that folks are seeing, it really makes a difference. And so one question that I'm still sitting with is how do we ethically consume pornography or is there a way to ethically consume pornography as it's currently represented in our technical system. So I'm just sitting with that, but I know we don't have that much more time. So Jess? And of course, as we promised, we do have information on how to obtain this uh, previously aforementioned book that we are raving about in this episode. So if you would like to get yourself a copy of Alex's book, we uh, would like to direct you to our show notes page, where you can also find more information on today's show in general at radicalai.org. And on the show notes, you'll find a few links to either purchase the book through MIT Press, to purchase the book through Alex's personal website, or if you would like to purchase the book through a local indie bookstore near you, there is a nifty little tool that we have linked on our site to help you find the place closest to you to do that. Again, welcome back and welcome to season three. We're so excited for the lineup of episodes that we have coming to you monthly at this point, unless there's any special bonus episode surprises, which we will see. But as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. And of course, as I just said, catch our regularly scheduled episodes. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. Mm-hmm.